If you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Luke chapter 15. I'll be there in just a little bit. Um, we are doing a series on prayer. Our mission at the church is to love God, love people, and make disciples. We've identified in that loving God that we want to focus three pathways on how we do that, and that it's scripture, prayer, and worship. And so when we're talking about prayer as part of the mission of our church, we want to ask the questions, what do we pray for? So last week we defined prayer, and uh, this week we're going to talk, in the next few weeks, talk a little bit about things that we pray for. As I was going through uh, Facebook uh, one time this week, uh, I saw a picture that illustrated what some people, how some people view the pastor. Uh, this is the picture, see if you uh, get it here. That's how I feel sometimes. You have the congregation, the pastor is the dam holding you from the restaurants out there. Um, I, thought that was, I, I thought that was a, a good, uh, good, it made me laugh um, and feel a little guilty. So I, I'm try, not trying to hold you out from the restaurants, but we're going to talk about prayer uh, and how we are more effective in it as we understand God. Last week, we gave a definition from Tim Keller of prayer. A prayer is a personal, communicative response to the knowledge of God. We looked at three levels of prayer, ask, seek, and knock. And so we asked the questions, what are some things that you are seeking and knocking for? Seeking was that idea, things that you are rearranging your priorities so that you could spend more time praying for them. Knocking is, is recognizing those things that are you're having resistance towards, or there's a, uh, something holding uh, you back from receiving that. And so we want to look at those type of things that we are asking and seeking and knocking for. When we talk about a response to the knowledge of God, we recognize that the more that we understand God's heart, the more effective our prayers are. So we're going to look at, um, in the next couple of weeks, praying for the religious lost, and the secular lost. And I believe that knowing the heart of God makes it easier to pray for those who are lost. And so we want to look at that this week. Um, so we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. We're going to look at the story of the prodigals. And um, I just I want to say that I, I prepared the, the message and I had three points. The prodigal God, the prodigal sons, I'm calling it. Um, if you look at your some of your Bibles, um, maybe your Publishers of your Bible have put a title above this parable in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Mine says the parable of the prodigal son. I don't do this very often in the Bible, but I crossed it out. And I wrote next to it the parable of the two lost sons. because That's really what the emphasis of this parable is. So we're talking about the prodigal God, the prodigal sons, and then how we pray for the prodigal's in our life, and as I was doing that, and I'm going to get to that in just a second, um, I, I just stopped for a second, and I, I said, "Well, does the Bible command us to pray for the lost?" And some of you are more um, kind of just asking some, you know, questions. Well, wait a second, are we ever are we even supposed to do this? And I, I have to, uh, to confess that I grew up in a culture where this was a regular practice. We were praying for people. And uh, so it just seemed logical to me. So I just stopped for a minute and said, well, let's, let's ask that question first. So the first question is, should we pray for the lost? Let me word it another way. Am I my brother's keeper? Just remember that story? Right? Uh, God creates everything. Everything is good. God says, there's one rule here. Don't eat from this tree. Adam and Eve eat, they're thrown out of the garden, sin is entered into this process. Cain and Abel bring a sacrifice to God. God likes one more than the other. Cain is jealous, he kills his brother. God comes looking, he says, where is Abel? And Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? Some of you have said that before, you know, when something at work isn't getting done and your boss comes and says, who was supposed to, you know, where's Charlie? He was supposed to be here at nine o'clock. And you say, am I my brother's keeper? You say, you're, you're misquoting that. 
Because God's answer could very easily be what? Yes. You certainly should be looking out for your brother. So should we be praying for the lost? First of all, the story of the Bible is one big rescue plan. From start to finish, it's all about how God is rescuing us. After Adam and Eve sin and God curses them, in that curse, he says, there's going to be a seed that's going to crush the head of the serpent. The serpent is going to bite the heel of the seed. And, and so you're reading the story, waiting to see where the seed's going to come from, how this rescue plan is going to take place. And you're, you're reading it, looking to see God's rescue plan unfold. I would say all of scripture shows about how God is saving the lost. So that's his heart. Saving the lost is at the heart of God. And can I just say, just stop for a second and say this. If, if you're visiting with us, if you're just kind of passing through, the storyline of the Bible is that every single one of us are sinners. That we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That we've we deserve death and punishment, but God loved us so much that he pursues us and he sends his son to die for your sins and for my sins, that we might be restored to that original place where we're created in the image of God and all things are the way that they should be. God is, is ushering this great rescue plan because saving people is the heart of God. One of the first examples we have in scripture of somebody praying for somebody else is when Moses goes up to get the law and he comes down and he finds the people of God have built themselves an altar and they're doing all this stuff and God's punishment comes. And what does Moses do? He intercedes for the people. Moses begins to pray for them. So we see that Moses did it. When Jesus comes, Luke says that the Son of God came to seek and save the lost. Saving people was the mission. It was Jesus' mission in life to save people. So we see that reaching the lost is it's the storyline of the Bible. It's at the heart of God. Moses prayed for other people. It was Jesus' mission to save other people. And probably the best argument for praying for lost people is that Jesus did it. Jesus is on the cross and he looks up to his heavenly father and says what? Father, forgive them. Now We, we stop and go, oh look, that's, that's really nice. Jesus prayed for those. No, he, his heart was so much for them that he is praying for them as they are crucifying him. And I would say this, if you keep reading the story and you get to Pentecost where 3,000 people are saved, God answered his prayer. And so we see that Jesus did it. Um, Stephen did it. The first martyr follows the same pattern. As he is being killed, he says, Father, don't hold the sin against them, forgive them. And one of the people that was there witnessing his death was Paul. I, mean, I wonder how many times Paul thought about that. Later on, how much he went back to that moment and saw Stephen's love for him even when he was standing in judgment of him. We see that Paul desired the salvation of his people in Romans chapter nine. Paul says, and I would give my life if it would save the Jewish nation, my, my family. It was his desire to see lost people save. And Paul asked for it in different ways. Um, he told us that we we're to pray for those in authority. Uh, when you look at the list of people that, that Paul asked us to pray for in authority, not all those people are believers. So we are praying for lost people. Now, obviously, we pray for them to rule well. And if I want them to rule well, one of the things that I pray is that they would come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Paul asked uh, prayer a few different times in uh, Ephesians chapter 6 that, his, uh, that he'd have boldness and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that the word of God 
would go out. So should we pray um, for the lost? I, I believe so. I think it's modeled in scripture. It's the storyline. Jesus did it and Paul models it. And so I do think this is something that we should do. But I think the, the main point is that it's at the heart of God. And that's the story in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Let me read it for you. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father but when he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let's eat and celebrate. If this was just the story of the prodigal son, it would stop there. That's, that's, the, that's the tail end of that story. But it doesn't stop there. He says in verse 25, Now the older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked, what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and he refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It is fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. One of the things that we uh, see in this story is a story of the prodigal God. Timothy Keller uh, coined that phrase in the book, prodigal God. Uh, one of you has my copy of it. Finish it and give it back. That would be great, but couldn't, fi couldn't find it. I need to start writing down who has my stuff. Um, but the idea there is the word prodigal uh, if you look at the de definition, spending money or resources freely and recklessly, wasteful, extravagant. Another definition is having or giving something on a lavish scale. And what Timothy Keller says is what has been given here lavishly is the grace of God. That's what's being overdone here. Now, from our point of view, when we look at the prodigal, um, we just, we see this fool who goes out and wastes a bunch of money 
and owes his dad a huge debt. He can't repay it. He comes back. When you really look at what he's saying, you know, you know, make me a hired servant. What he's saying to his dad is, teach me a skill. Give me a, give me a, a labor job. Let me go out in the field and do that. His dad restores him. But what we miss from our culture is the shame in this story. Um, we get shame a little bit, but in Eastern culture, the dad is chief. And you don't come to dad and say, I wish you were dead. You don't do that anyway. I just want my money. It's very shameful. He shames his dad. He shames his culture. And even from our point of view, we don't get this, he shames his town. It's really the whole, the whole thing. And, and Jesus tells this incredible story, right? He goes off to a foreign land. From a Jewish point of view, that's shameful. You don't do that. And he, he spends his money lavishly. That's shameful in a Jewish culture. You don't do that. You don't spend your, you don't spend your parents and your grandparents and your great-grandparents. You don't spend you, property you never give up in the Jewish culture. Here he is spending it on stuff. You don't do that. And Jesus tells us, Master, where does he end up? I mean, he ends up in the pig farm. He's a Jewish boy. It's the whole story of, of just shame that is there. And the lavish grace that the father pours on him is this opposite end of shame. We'll look at it in just a little bit. But there's so much to this story. So we see this showing of extravagant grace. Over the next couple, uh, next two weeks, we're going to look at the religious loss today and the secular loss uh, next week. And I, I want to define the two brothers as the religious lost. Why? Because they start off in the home. Both of them do. Okay, they, they start there. And so they're both lost in the story. So let me define that for you. The older brother's problem is self-righteousness. As we look at the story, I have always done this. I've always obeyed you. I have served you. I've, I've been, where does he come from? He was in the field. Here's the party. It's all about, I've done all of it. There's self-righteousness. One person wrote this, many people involved in God's kingdom work have a broken relationship with the Father. Let me, let me read that again. Listen. Many people involved in God's kingdom work, many people involved in the church, have a broken relationship with the Father. They see no cause for celebration when someone is accepted into the family because they believe themselves to be the only people who have truly earned God's favor. At the heart of the older brother's problem is a broken relationship with his father. He doesn't love what his father loves. Now understand this, here's the older brother, okay? He's got some responsibility. And one of the responsibilities is to do what his father desires. His father is missing the son. What the older brother never does is go looking for him. He stays at home. He doesn't love what his father loves. And the reason is he feels like he's earned something better. He's earned something better. Look, I've done this. I've worked at this. One word that I'm becoming extremely tired of on social media is the word entitled. It is thrown out a lot. And what we would say is the younger brother thought he was entitled. Give me my share of the inheritance. But if you read the story, the older brother is also entitled. He just thinks he's earned it. 
The younger brother didn't think he had to do anything to get it. He'd just give it to me. The older brother says, I've, I've earned this. Give it to me. They're both entitled. One person described the gospel this way. It's just one beggar showing another beggar where to get food. The heart of the gospel is that we are all lost. The older brother has a father problem as well. It's just a different direction. The younger brother, his problem is self-discovery. I need to go out and find myself. I need to have a few life lessons. I need to get out there and try a few things. I need to stop listening to my father and doing the things that he's asked me to do. And so the younger brother also has a broken relationship with the father. And what I want you to see here is that both have a problem. The older brother is self-righteous. The younger brother is self-seeking. They both have a broken relationship with the father. The older brother thinks he's earned it. And the younger brother thinks he deserves something. When am I going to get my share? I deserve it. Tired of waiting for it. But the heart of it is a broken relationship with the father. And this father in the story shows extravagant grace to both. So next week, we're going to look at how God shows that to the secular loss. But today, just focusing on the religious loss, the father, God in this story, throws an extravagant party. You know, we celebrate a lot of different things. Anniversaries, birthdays, promotions. You know, we lose five pounds. We celebrate, take ourselves out to dinner and put five pounds on. Whatever it is, we celebrate all this stuff. And we celebrate what we love, what we honor, what we appreciate. The story here of the celebration, everybody that was in the original audience would know what Jesus is talking about. There's a party at the end, a banquet. You want to be on the inside of that party, not on the outside. Now, I don't know what you picture um, passing from this life to be. I don't know if you're thinking you're going to come up to a pearly gate. I don't know if you're going to see a bunch of fat babies on clouds. I don't know if you think you're walking up to a mansion. I'm going to tell you what I picture. Scripture over and over pictures a party. I'm going to a party. And you want to be on the inside of that party. Because we celebrate what God loves. In fact, in this story, it's the third of three stories. There's a lost sheep. There's a celebration. There's a lost coin, there's a celebration. There's a lost son, there's a celebration. Now, as I was thinking about this, we celebrate the things we love, we celebrate the things that God loves. Guess what? They should be the same things. And part of understanding the heart of God is to make sure that we're celebrating the same things that God loves. God throws extravagant parties. And then fourth on your notes there, welcoming, uh, God welcomes sinners extravagantly. Look at verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. Some have pictured the, the father sitting on the porch in his rocking chair, I don't know looking off into the distance, waiting for his son. I don't know if he was sitting. I don't know if he was working in the field. It doesn't say, but he is waiting for us. He's longing for us to return. He wants there to be restoration. God is waiting. It's a beautiful picture. Second, he doesn't wait for his son to get there. He runs out to him. He meets us on the road. There's a lot of significance in this culturally. Uh, first of all, older men didn't run. 
And so God is pictured here that, right, we huge shame on the prodigal side. Now here's an older man running out to the broken person. He, he is showing an extravagant response to the return of the prodigal. And so he runs out to meet him. Uh, I listened to one uh, Jewish man discuss this story, and he, he brought even a different perspective. And I don't know if this is what Jesus had in mind, but as the prodigal is returning, he ashamed his father, he ashamed his family, and he ashamed his community. So as the prodigal is returning, the community could rise up and just deal with the problem before he even gets home. Saying it was, it's the community's response to kill him because he has been ashamed to all of us. And so the dad gets up and runs out there to rescue him from his own community. It's extravagant response. God's waiting for us to return. He meets us on the road. Third, he has compassion. I don't know what you. And finally, give an account for all that stuff. And here's the beautiful thing that if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've given your life to Him, if you love the things that He loves, what you find in the person of the Creator of the universe is compassion. He embraces us. He embraces his son. Now, I, I don't, it's a different culture, but I, I don't know about you, but this is kind of the West and, and the culture that I grew up in. Uh, men didn't, uh, they didn't, they didn't hug each other. That, that wasn't a thing in my home. Men didn't hug or even more so that other thing, kiss, no. You know, we occasionally, you know, the right touchdown moment, you know, had a little bit of contact here, prefer here. The picture of the embrace here is, is one of what we inwardly desire to be so incredibly grabbed and brought in by the Father. Now, I see some of your faces right here, and let me just say this. I do not need a hug after church, all right? You can all, I see it in your eyes. You can all stop right there. The picture here is being embraced by our Heavenly Father, to be, to be brought in, and it's a beautiful picture. And then he restores us. The younger son has prepared a speech. The speech is, I've blown it. I don't deserve to be your son. Will you make me a hired son, a servant? And he goes through his spiel, and it's like the father didn't even hear him. He just he embraces him, turns to his servant, Kill the fatted calf, let's have a party. My son is home, give him the robe, put the ring back on the finger. What is it? He's restored him to his position. Does he deserve that? No. In fact, culturally, again, he doesn't even deserve to be the hired hand. God restores him. What a beautiful, beautiful picture. Now again, there's not a prodigal son here. There are prodigal sons, plural. There's two sons that are divided from their father. And so I just want to just kind of address that. Maybe you're beginning to identify some people that you need to begin to pray for. How do we identify the religious lost? Maybe even in our midst. How do we, how do we know if there's an older brother in our midst? Somebody who we should be concerned for because their relationship with the Father is broken. What, is it, what does it look like? I think it's hard to picture in our culture. But I would say they're more concerned with being right than righteous. Um, right? There's just, they're more concerned with just, I'm right. 
And they're not as concerned with the right relationships. They're concerned with position more than people. They are rule followers, but they miss the heart. As I was going over my notes again this morning, one of the things that just struck me is I think if we're honest, there's a, there's a, a little bit of younger brother and older brother in all of us. I think, we, I think we can, now some of us lean more to one than the other, but there's a little bit of a younger brother and older brother in all of us. And sometimes when that younger brother comes into the church, their life's been a mess, they get baptized and they begin to, to do different things in the church. Some of the older brothers go, wait a second. We've been around here longer than they have. And some of us struggle with the, the older brother types and we just, I'm just gonna go out and make a name for myself. There's a little bit of that younger brother, older brother in all of us, but we, we should be concerned for those who are religious but don't love the same thing the Father loves. Now, identifying the religious that lost us, that left us, that's a little bit easier. They don't identify with their family values. Now, I, I want to, I wrote that and I, I said, ah, oh, some people are going to misinterpret that. Um, there are some family values that are just your family values that maybe some of our kids will grow out of. And they're just traditions, the way that we've liked to do things. Um, and maybe some of those things we need to let go. But there are family values that are from God that we want that they leave as well that we don't. So maybe more specifically, they don't identify with their foundational beliefs. They don't identify with their first community, be it the church or family or whatever it is. And over the years, I've sat with many people who are brokenhearted about their kids or grandkids who are not walking with the Lord. And I want to say that sometimes pastors have not been helpful in this process. When something happens to that kid that grew up in church, went to Awana's, memorized all the verses, and then they just went off on their prodigal tangent, never returned to church, went off and did their own thing, uh, lived a, a you know, wicked lifestyle, whatever that is, died, and then the parents come and they say, well, they, they, they had faith as a kid, and and the pastor gets up there and does the funeral and preaches them into heaven. I don't know somebody's heart. But the key to the prodigal is that he came back. And so, look, there's something that we need to recognize in this story that we don't want to recognize. And so let me just kind of walk you through that. The return process on your notes. They run out on their family. And can we just stop for a minute and say that is really painful? Some of you have experienced it. Others of you have not. But when that prodigal leaves, it's heartbreaking. It hurts. We feel like we have failed. We question everything that we have done, everything that we have said, every rule that we made. We play all sorts of different stories in our head. It is painful. And Christians, be careful what you say to those hurting people. I have heard the stupidest things 
come from Christians' mouths to other people who are hurting over their prodigal. Oh, goodness. They left the family. The second part of the process is that they run out of money. They run out of money. Or whatever. I just want to say this. You look at the story of the prodigal, and we, we, when we're hurting financially, um, he ran out of money because of bad choices he made. But there was some good choices he made, I'm sure, in there. Jesus doesn't emphasize that. I mean, the guy had to eat, the guy had to pay rent, whatever it was. I mean, there's some good choices, some bad choices. There were some things that were out of his control. Jesus says he ran out of money, and then what happens right after that? A famine. It's out of his control. So a bunch of circumstances happened that left him without. And then third, he ran out of options. Now, Here's the point. When those that we love run out, so many times we, just, we, we want some sort of magical uh, hallmark movie situation. I, I don't even know what it is, but they see something and, oh man, I need to go back to mom and dad or go, go back to church, whatever it is. And I was just going to say that the prodigal comes home And the key is in verse 17. Jesus said, but when he came to himself, when he lost everything, when he was looking at pig slop, he all of a sudden went, what in the world? How did I get here? Wow. This is key. So how do we pray for the prodigals in our life? One, listen to this. This is so hard. But we pray that they reach the point of brokenness. We pray that they reach the point of brokenness that they might come to themselves. Well, this is the opposite of how I normally play. I say, bless them, help them. We pray that they come to the point of brokenness where they see where they're at and they wake up and they say, I need to go home. My father loves me more than this. We need to pray that they come to the point of brokenness, that they come back to God. Now, let me just say this. The heart of them coming back is for them to come back to God first. Oh, please get this. If they don't come back to God, there's not going to be any restoration in the family. Then they're restored to God's family. And what we're concerned about is that God saves their soul. There's the story in 1 Corinthians where somebody has an immoral lifestyle and, and Paul tells the church in Corinth to cast them out. And he says, cast them out so that their flesh might be destroyed and their soul might be saved. The best thing that can happen for a prodigal is that their flesh, their stuff is wiped out that their soul might be saved. Paul actually said, here's the plan. Let's throw them out. Let them reach the end. Let God save their soul. That's what we're praying for. Second, we need to pray against the enemy's desires. In uh, Luke chapter 22, and just a, a few chapters later, in verse 31, Jesus has told Peter, you're going to deny me, and you're going to turn against me. And he says to Peter in verse 31, he said, Simon, Simon, he's getting his attention here. We, in our culture, we might say, Simon, look at me. Simon, listen to me. Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. 
Peter, something's about to happen. You are about to get sifted. You are about to get turned upside down, mixed all together, broken all up. And I have prayed. Jesus prayed for Peter. I have prayed for your heart. Man, what an incredible way to pray for those prodigals in our life. Pray that God brings other solid Christians into their life. Here's something I specifically pray for people who are lost. I'll pray, God, will you bring other good, solid believers into their life? Uh, I was having a, a prayer uh, meeting at a church, uh, pastored somewhere else, and we were, we were praying uh, for Paul's uh, sister. She was a prodigal. And she just gotten divorced and her life was upside down. She was far away from the Lord. And I said, Paul, let's pray that God brings another person, another Christian into her life. Well, a few months later, Paul is upset because this guy from high school that she used to date has called her. He's like, I don't know what is going on. Will you pray for him? So we're praying for his sister. And this guy from high school takes this gal to dinner and he looks across the table and he said uh, I've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and I recognize that the way that I treated you in high school and we were dating was wrong and I want to ask your forgiveness guess what she found Jesus She's living for the Lord right now. And he comes in, he goes, Dave, you're never gonna believe what happened. God brought another Christian into her life. Wow. And that has been one of the most powerful stories. That's what I pray oftentimes when I'm praying for lost people. Bring somebody else into their life. Pray scripture over them. As I was studying this, I found a blog of somebody who declared themselves the prodigal that came home. And she said that her parents prayed uh, Psalm 18. Uh, That's in the back of your bulletin too. It's our prayer focus for this week. Psalm 18 verses 16 and 17 over her daily. Mom and dad whose prodigal daughter had left, they prayed, um, he sent from on a high He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, and uh, for they were too mighty for me. Now, I'm sure they changed the words a little bit, right? I'm sure their daughter's name was in there. Father, take her. Draw her out of the many waters that she is in. Rescue her from a strong enemy. Uh, those people that they're around, they hate her, but we love her. They are too strong for her, but you are stronger. They prayed those words over their daughter, and she says, God answered their prayers. Pray for humility for them and for you. If we want somebody to come to their end, we need to also come to our end. And I would say, look, when the prodigal has left, when when the relationship is severed, pray, don't preach. Pray, don't preach. Maybe there's part of your life where you need to ask forgiveness for things that you have said. And I, I recognize, look, your role may be small and their offenses may be huge. But own your stuff. Ask forgiveness for your part. And then don't continue to enable. Um, I felt like I needed to say this. Um, Does the father in the story enable his son? Kind of. I mean, he gives him a big chunk of money that we all know he can't handle. But you know what? We all enable. You remember, you know, when your parents were really upset at you and your dad looked at you and he said, and you knew you were in trouble when he said, I brought you into this world 
and I can take you out. Okay, you knew you were at the, you knew you were at the edge right there. You know what? If we brought them into the world, we're already enabling them, okay? What, what I mean by is, look, the son, when he is looking at the pig slop, he doesn't even think for a minute, hey, I wonder if I can go get a loan from dad. He knows. He knows he's gotten all that he's going to get. And if you keep piecemealing that out there, whatever that is, they're never going to come to their end and they're never going to come back to God. So stop enabling them. Hardest thing you will do. Application and action. Um, I was thinking of our scripture reading uh, this week and I was... Um, I just stopped. I've, I've read the passage many times. Um, I've preached the passage. Um, but it just caught me off guard as I was reading through our, our Bible reading this week when the, when the guys are bringing the paralytic on the mat to Jesus. They're carrying him over there. And I just stopped and I said to myself things that I've said in many sermons. I mean, you know, do you, do you have good enough friends that would drag you to Jesus? Are you a good enough friend that you would drag somebody to Jesus? And Jesus looks at their faith, not the, not the guy in the mat's faith. There's only, uh, we were talking about this in, in my small group. We were talking about how there's only a few instances when somebody else's faith impacts the person that needs to be healed. The centurion we read about. But here, Jesus looks at their faith and says, there's going to be a healing here. I'm gonna, your sins are forgiven. I just, you know, if we're praying for prodigals out there, people that are, that are breaking our hearts, I just, I wonder whose mat you're grabbing. I wonder what friend you're dragging. And so I think the application is that we're all involved in this story. And some of us that are kind of older brothers need to get the log out of our own eye. And the log for the older brother is, man, God could not have made me any better than he made me right now. What a great son I am. Have you all looked at the hard work that I've done? Do you know, see how many years I've put into this farm? That wasn't here. That was, I did that. I did that. Let me tell you how many days I've been here. And we don't see our brokenness. So some of us need to take the log out of our own eye. Second, I, I just, I really want to encourage you through this prayer series to have a journal. Now, I can honestly say that I, I grew up, I grew up in churches, I grew up in seminary, and I don't know how many times I've been in a, you know, spiritual disciplines class where the, where the guy said, you need to have a journal, a prayer journal, a devotion journal, and I just... I probably had 50 different journals over the years that I have started and never did anything with. One of the neatest things that God has done for me in the last couple years is that I've just been able to do that in a way that I've never been able to do before. My journal goes with me almost everywhere now. And it's just a hodgepodge of eating stuff that I'm trying to deal with, uh, Bible readings, prayers, speakers, books I'm reading, and I, the greatest part of that is to be able to look back at it. And so for me, having a, a prayer list, and I have one in my journal, and I, I, don't, you know, I don't want people to find it, but it's in my journal, and I've got nine things I pray for on a daily basis. These are things that I'm surrounding. We'll talk about that later. And, and then on, on the side list, I've got a list of names, people that I'm praying for their salvation. And I'm praying that God brings other Christians in their life because they haven't listened to me. And I'm, I'm praying that God would do something in their life, but I've got a list of people and I can look at that. And so one of the applications to this, I would love for you to have a journal where you're listing the things that you're praying for so that you can look back at them. And then finally, if, you're, if you have a prodigal, you know, the religious loss, that person, they grew up in the church, they... They, they knew the verses as a kid. They made a commitment. They've left. They haven't been back. And you, you don't know if they're saved or not saved. You want to believe they are, but 
you look at their life and you wonder and you're, you're just kind of, I don't know, what should I do? You should pray for them. And if you should be praying for them, why don't you find it? Ask God to give you a scripture that you would pray over them. And on your list, that would just be different. You know, I pray for my kids. I pray, that's, on my, that's one of my nine. I'll confess that. They're on there. I pray something different for each of them because they're different. And your prodigal may have another, just pray something over them. And the last thing, and it's not on your notes, and I need to say this. Look up here. When they return, Lord willing, how will you respond? They come back. I'll tell you, some of you have already rehearsed the the speech that you want them to give you. We want them on their hands and knees, groveling and begging. Oh, I was so, so wrong. How could I have not seen what a great mother you were? Oh my goodness. I am back here because of your chocolate chip cookies. Could not find them anywhere else. The home that you provided, the schooling, and all the games, I just can't believe I... No, they're not going to come back like that. They're going to come back and they're going to say a tiny bit of what you want them to say. Maybe. I'm kind of sorry. You embrace them. You have compassion on them. You try again. You know what we do as a church? We celebrate. We throw a party. Not because of what we've done, but because it's the heart of God and it's who he is. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Thank you that we're a part of your story. We got the story of the prodigal son for those who have been in the church is very familiar. But Lord, I pray that we would put a face to the story. A heart, soul. I pray that we would see you in a more realistic way of who you are. That it would spur us to pray for those that are breaking our heart. And that we wouldn't make it about us, but we would make it about you. And I pray that we would see lives changed. Because people are crying out to you for their kids and their grandkids, their friends. We pray that we would see a harvest of returning prodigals because of your lavish love for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.